Good morning, everybody. Uh, we are continuing on in the f- book of First Samuel. And so the way our church has been doing it, if you don't know already, is we have been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, within the books of the Bible. And um, yeah, I believe that we are witnesses of God's grace to us that as we study His Word, the promised Holy Spirit is the one that comes and changes our hearts and lives to make our lives more like Jesus. And so this is our prayer today as we open up the Word and study it this morning. As we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that we'll be going over this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're, gonna, we're going to read the whole chapter. So 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. And if you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 218. Uh, When you have found it, please rise from your seats in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to this oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give 
ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Saul shall reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. There are three parts to this message that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, Normally you might see this in a narrative as well, and it's just the prologue, the body, and then the epilogue. And that's what we kind of see here, this kind of separation between the prologue, body, and epilogue. But it's kind of easily separated because it's separated by the theme of salvation, which is used, the word for salvation or the root word for salvation is used three times in this passage and once in each section. Once in verse 3 where it says, Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And then the second time you see salvation is in verse 9. Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And then the third time is in verse 13. Not a man shall be put to death this day for the Lord, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And so you have pre-salvation, which is in verse 3. Then you have intra-salvation in verse 9. And then post-salvation in verse 13. And so in this pericope, you have a peri-salvation narrative. There is actually a lot more symmetry that we're going to go over as we study this passage, and we'll discover it as we go verse by verse. But let's go to the first point, pre-salvation. And in pre-salvation, the narrative or the Bible is showing us about the world's pride, the world's pride. And this is from verses 1 to 3. The last chapter ended on some worthless fellows asking, how can this man save us? And then we open up right after that to an introduction of an Ammonite named Nahash. Now in 1946, I believe, um, 47, uh, we discovered what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. This Bedouin shepherd was, you know, going about in that Dead Sea area of Qumran, right? And then he would throw a rock because he was bored uh, into these caves. And then when he threw a rock into these caves, he heard this like uh, breaking sound, like pottery was breaking. So it's like, what is that? So when he went to go explore, he had discovered all this pottery containing all these scrolls. And this is what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we now have archived in the, in the 90s. Uh, we have archived everything that we have. This is important because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have additional material uh, preceding verse 1 of this particular, particular narrative. And so 
in what we had found, there is a little bit of a um, explanation or description prior to what we would read from verse 1. And this is how it would read translated in English. Nahash, king of the Ammonites, sorely oppressed the Gadites and the Reubenites. These are the two clans or the tribes of Israel, okay? The Gadites and the Reubenites. And he gouged out all their right eyes and struck terror and dread in Israel. Not a man was left among the Israelites beyond the Jordan whose right eye was not gouged out by Nahash, king of the Ammonites, except that 7,000 men fled from the Ammonites and entered Jabesh Gilead. About a month later, and then verse 1 connects, about a month later, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Now there's some valuable information that helps us to put together the severity of the affliction that Nahash the Ammonite inflicted on the Israelites. This was an incredibly cruel oppression that the Israelites faced and a cruelty we frequently and almost invariably see in war. The war in Ukraine right now may be exceptional if only because we now have technology and social media and we're able to see um, almost frame by frame what is happening on the ground there. We have pictures and videos of tanks running over civilians, uh, planes bombing maternity hospitals, mass graves and evidence of torture. Uh, the cruelty, however, and un unfortunately, the cruelty isn't unique in war. It's just that we now have a picture by picture um, timeline of what is happening. But Nahash the Ammonite was especially cruel. How cruel was Nahash? He would capture the Israelite men and gouge out their right eyes. Uh, the men in the area east of the Jordan, all of them were either tortured or killed. And if you survived, you had your right eye missing. Not only are you then humiliated and held in scorn, you can never fight again as a man. You would be unfit for military service. You see, men usually held their swords in their right hand, and on their left hand, they would have a shield. And the shield would cover your left eye. And so without a right eye, you would be forced to fight without a shield and then be uh, vulnerable. But also, even if you didn't have the shield, you would only have half your field of vision. For the rest of your life, you would not be able to defend your family, your city, your nation, or anything that you loved. You were crippled and crippled also for all these re reasons, possibly crippled by fear as well and terror, as we have read. This is a way that Nahash would not only dominate the ones that he captured, but everyone around him that heard of the story, especially the people in Israel. They would have heard of his ruthlessness, and it would work against them as psychological warfare. 
And then we come into this chapter. There were some, however, that escaped to this city, which is right to the east of the Jordan, called Jabesh Gilead. Nahash then comes and surrounds the city. city. That's, what, that's what it means to besiege a city. It surrounds the city. And so what happens next is delegates from Jabesh Gilead come out to offer terms of peace. Please don't kill us. Please don't kill us and we will be your slaves is what the terms are. Just give us our lives and we will be forever your slaves. Nahash says this in response that he would indeed spare them, but the price would be all of their right eyes. So he would gouge out all of their right eyes still. And he adds the reason of why he's going to do this. He wants to do this because he wants to bring disgrace to all of Israel. It wasn't enough that he captured and disgraced this local city. Nahash the Ammonite wanted to disgrace all of Israel. I see this kind of uh, lack of discernment from some people today. They think that if we give in a little here or a little there, the enemies of God would spare us and we would not be attacked. Maybe perhaps we would send delegates ourselves and we'll say, we'll be slaves to your ideologies and rule. And even thinking, well, I mean, what's, look, look at these culture wars, people would say. What's done is done, right? What's done is done. I, be, I feel bad for these other guys who had their right eyes gouged out, but I would like to survive. I mean, this is my bread and butter. This is how I work. This is how I feed my family, right? Besides, it's a losing war. We're not going to win this war, some may think. Why then would you make things harder on yourself, right? But those that hate God will hate the people of God. I find it intriguing that while the Israelites in the story faced their right eyes being gouged out for being Israelites, people holding to Orthodox Christian values or even apparently in like very modern times, holding to natural law will be stripped of their right to engage in public discourse. I mean, it's not equivalent in severity, albeit the degrees have increased and are increasing still. But the correlation to me has been fascinating. All someone has to do is lump you in as a bigot or racist or phobic, and immediately the seeding of grounds begin, Right? Besides, phobic has come to mean something completely different than what the word actually means, which is an irrational fear. So if you're just against it, or you're saying, I don't agree with this lifestyle, perhaps, you will be dubbed phobic. And not only do you not have to agree with the lifestyle now, you have to celebrate the lifestyle. Otherwise, you're phobic. And now it's going even further to not only must you celebrate in this lifestyle, but you must participate in that lifestyle. Otherwise, you are phobic. This is what we're seeing more and more in the world. This is the pride of the world. And the pride of the world is on the things that God hates. You see, there are no humble displays of sin, only arrogant demonstrations of hatred for the things 
that God calls good. In John 15, 18 to 19, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This hatred that we see from Nahash is nothing new, and it has not ceased since. And this is not the separation that we see the Israelites also witnessing in these few verses. You cannot maintain, this is the separation, you cannot maintain friendship with Christ as long as you are friends with the world. In 1 John 2.15 it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James puts it a little bit more forcefully. In 4.4, he writes, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that is precisely what Nahash the Ammonite was. He was an enemy of God. But you see, the people of God have been called out of the world. And then after you're called out of the world, what are you to do? You are called out of the world then to love God and to love the things of God. What God commands, what God obeys, um, what God, uh, how we obey God. The Israelites then would then ask for a weak extension. On the, to answer Nahash's demands. And Nahash agrees, thinking, if the word would get around, my fame will rise, and the thrill of humiliating the people of God would increase, and then I would be able to twist a knife into an already demoralized Israel. That's the pre-salvation portion the introduction. And here's the intra-salvation from verses 4 to 11. Intra-salvation, I call it the deciding factor. The messengers from Jabesh Gilead come to Gilead. And when the news is disseminated, um, the people there weep out loud. Uh, this news is incredibly disheartening. It would only be a matter of time before Nahash came for the rest of Israel. Now in verse 5, we see Saul is returning from work, and he sees and hears all this commotion and asks why the people are all weeping when they told him there is a key verse. And before I get to that, I want to mention that sometimes things will look bleak. It will look like there is no winning it will look dark. Your very next steps you might not be able to see. But you see, when people would weep, they would weep to God. When they would cry, they would cry out loud, asking God for mercy. And this is what we as people of God must also do. When you don't see the very next steps ahead of you, we have been given this 
key opportunity to come before the Lord as people of God, he hears the cries of his people. And that's why from verse 5, we go into verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. The deciding factor for this war is introduced. It is the Spirit of God. And once again, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Once that happens, the narrative starts to take a turn. He summons all the militia in Israel in verse 7, divides them into groups, and in the early morning, he destroys the Ammonites so comprehensively that even if you happen to survive, no one would be fleeing with anyone else. That means you wouldn't be paired up with anyone. You would be fleeing alone. That's how comprehensively you were destroyed. But all of this hinges on verse 6, the deciding factor. For Israel's fate was the Spirit of God. Again, we see Israel totally dependent on God for their survival and well-being. This narrative isn't just about Saul being confirmed as king, but rather it is more about who is giving that confirmation. It's not just about who's going to be confirmed as king, but who is giving that confirmation. There are poetic structures in the Bible. They're written for a reason. Uh, literary structures that we see to bring points to come out, to help us understand. And there is a chiastic structure that is shown here where verse 6, from the verse 6, from verse six there are, it serves as a mirror to the verses before and after, before and after, all the way down and up the chapter. So verse 6 is the middle, the chiastic structure hinges upon that. And then before verse 6, we see Saul questioning in verse 5. And then after verse 6, we see Saul responding, right? And then before the questioning, we see messengers come with bad news. And after Saul's response, we see messengers go with good news. See, this chiastic structure is being played out. The narrative is showing us that it's hinging like a door hinge on verse 6. We see the statement with the bad news in verse 3, if there is no one to save us, we will give up ourselves to you. And after the messengers with good news go out, the very same statement we saw in verse 3 is now in verse 10. Tomorrow we will give up ourselves to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And finally, verses 1 and 2, we see Nahash the Ammonite gloating with pride, mirrored by verse 11, where he and his whole company is struck down and humiliated. Not only is this chiastic mirroring, but the words that are used to describe what happens to Saul is that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. Now, there's so much to this chapter, but we're just going to go to a little bit of it. There is one judge, and only one judge in the book of Judges, where it says three times that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And that judge was Samson. And while all the judges in the book of Judges were mighty in their own way, and then it would say like Gideon and other judges would be equipped by the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit was upon them. The feats of Samson clearly stood out. 
The book of Judges is a very graphic and in many ways disturbing book. And yet, Samson stands out so much that every child grows up learning about Samson in Sunday school. The other judges had the Spirit of God upon them, but only Samson had this one descriptive, and that was that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he clearly did these mighty acts after the rushing of the Spirit. And the Bible uses this phrase of the Spirit of God rushing upon Saul now, and it's used for Saul three times as well. The first two were in chapter 10, verse 6, and verse 10. And now the third time, this word rushing, or the rushing of the Spirit, is used for him here in chapter 11, verse 6. There is no doubt that this correlation between Samson and Saul is on purpose And it's going to point to the fact that Saul is going to do something extraordinary. And God is the one that's doing that extraordinary thing through Saul. The allusions to judges do not stop here. Again, we could go much longer, but I'll do this one as well. After the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, he would take his oxen and he would cut them up. He would butcher them and send them throughout Israel, reminding us then of what? The last episode in the book of Judges where the Levite would cut up his dead concubine and send her pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, the book of Judges is quite an extraordinary book. And while the episode in Judges would lead to a civil war at the very end of that book, the oxen that Saul would cut up would lead them to unite together and defeat a common enemy. There are more connections of Judges, but I believe this is as far as I'll go this morning. But what it points to is, if you continue to read this narrative, you see the language that's used, you see the literary structure that's being used here, Saul is functioning as a super judge of sorts. But what is the deciding factor? The deciding factor is the Spirit of God. All right, maybe one more. One more. In Judges 19, it's in Gibeah, right? It's in Gibeah where the horrific act of cutting up the concubine occurs. There are worthless fellows in Gibeah that would lead, ultimately lead Israel to the civil war where 400,000 men would go against the tribe of Benjamin and massive amount of casualties in Israel would take place. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we see that it is from Gibeah that Saul is there and it's from Gibeah that the tribe of Benjamin is the source of salvation. Once a place and a people of destruction, but because of the Spirit of God, what has changed? It is now a source of salvation. And Israel should be able to see the point too. While the confirmation of a king is noteworthy, it is the understanding of who confirms that king that is crucial. The reason why it is crucial is clear. Without God, we can do nothing. Post-salvation, the kingdom renewed. That's from verses 12 to 15. After the victory, some people want to kill those that didn't pay homage to Saul before in the earlier chapter. However, Saul interjects and denies them the opportunity to do this. 
and he recognizes that the deliverance that they received that day was divine. Saul recognized that divine deliverance then is cause for gratitude and not retribution. This recognition and admission prompts Saul then to gather the people at Gilgal. Gilgal was a very important place. The next few verses has Gilgal repeated many times, three times. So it's a very Gilgal-y verse, right? But Gilgal was an important place because that is where Samuel would gather the people to renew the kingdom. And the word renewal then implies that the kingdom had some sort of deterioration before, and, but now it's going to be renewed. What that also implies, and what it means is, this is not a new kingdom, but in fact an old one. The kingdom then isn't a new kingdom with a new king, but rather an existing kingdom where Israel would gather to submit to the Lord's ultimate kingship. And so the narrative ends with the people of God confirming the king of God, thereby renewing what was already in place, the kingdom of God. And now through this renewal, we see everyone without exception supporting Saul as king. And the peace offering that is given to the Lord implies reconciliation with God. And then the people rejoiced greatly. I suppose it is not hard to see how this story is analogous to Jesus' triumphal entry 1,000 years later after this story to the great rejoicing of everyone. However, it wouldn't be in the city of Gilgal, but the city of Jerusalem, and it wouldn't be on a war horse, but on the foal of a donkey. And this humble entrance would be to complete See, Jesus' humble entrance will be to complete what every other king before him could not do, to bring the renewal of the kingdom to completion. No one would expect a king to enter the way Jesus did, but that's exactly how the Lord of glory entered. And while no one could see it at the time, this entrance marked the beginning of the final events that would lead to his exaltation. The greatest of kings in history would enter Jerusalem to shouts of praise and adulation. Hosanna to the son of David. King David and the kings before him like Saul would time and time again defeat oppressors like Nahash the Ammonites a thousand years before or the Philistines before that. And so the people shouting the praises, these praises to Jesus, thought that Jesus was there to do the same. And yet people failed to see the true importance of Jesus' triumphal entry. The kings of Israel couldn't have defeated their enemies on their own strength. What we're seeing in the narrative, what the Bible is telling us, the only way they were able to even defeat these kings, these other kings like Nahash, was with the strength or by the strength of the Lord. And even after that, they could not provide a permanent peace and rest to the people of God. It's because the true enemy that had to be defeated weren't the Ammonites or the Philistines. The true enemy is sin and death. And sin and death are not defeated on a war horse. It took something even greater than that. 
It took the condescension of a humble God who took on the form of a servant, emptying himself of his glory so that he could willingly submit himself to the punishment that God's people deserve for their sins. Jesus thereby completed the renewal of the kingdom where God's people have now been entirely secured by his blood and atonement on the cross. Jesus conquered sin and death and now offers this victory to those that believe and follow him. That's the gospel that we believe. That's the gospel we celebrate week in and week out. And that's why it leads to celebration. This is an everlasting and great rejoicing. Every first day of the week, we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death and our reconciliation with God. Even though we may go through ups and downs in our lives, and some of those downs are really low, some of those ups, may, we may even be mistaken, this, is this heaven? It's not. It points to that no matter what we go through, no matter what circumstance that we face, that God is the one in control of our lives, using everything and anything that we may not even, can even imagine of to bring us closer and closer to him. Day by day, moment by moment, event by event, season after season, we are growing closer and closer to God. He's using everything and he will use everything for that purpose. That is what is assured to us in Jesus' blood, and that reconciliation that we have with God because of his atonement. That's what it means that Jesus conquered sin and death. There is no more control that we, our finality, our final destination is a place where we cannot get up from. It's a place of humiliation and defeat. That's not it. But what we have been assured of is that the victory that Jesus has will be given to us in completion. And that's why, even though we may not see it in this very moment, it leads us to celebration an everlasting and great rejoicing. Every first day of the week, we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death and our reconciliation with God, not just on Easter Sunday. Every Sunday, we are reminded that it is God who sovereignly controls the universe. And while we don't understand why every piece is the way it is, we understand that God is good, that he is sovereign, and that we are forever in his hands. And that's why celebration is important. I want to give you just two characteristics then of this expression as we end. Because expression takes place in time and space, okay? Number one, expression is done with the people of God. Consistently, we see a gathering of God's people to celebrate what he has done. Samuel gathered the people at Gilgal, and God continues to gather his people in the local church today to celebrate the victory of Jesus Christ. God wants his people to gather and to celebrate. There is no such thing as celebrating by yourself. It's with the people of God that we celebrate. And number two, celebration is done on the first day of the week. Jesus rose again from the grave on Sunday, and so we celebrate on Sundays. It's so pivotal that we now have our Sabbath on a Sunday. 
These two things, the time and place, these two things are being attacked today from even surprising places. People don't gather with the church and think that they can either worship from home or have some informal gathering at a cafe. Um, The Bible admonishes us, however, to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing because it is in the gathering that the Lord God stirs us up. You get to hear the word of God proclaimed, prayed, sung, and celebrated. The church is called the bride of Christ and you cannot claim to love Christ if you do not love his bride. And that means love demands gathering. The weekly gathering is also something that you will find hard to commit to, but this is something that I encourage you to do. God created Sabbath for man, but the point is that he created it. There are divisions that we see in natural law or nature. The years can be separated by the rotation of the sun. The months can be separated by the rotation of the moon. But the weak, you don't see the weak in nature. The weak was a gift from God. The Sabbath from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 was a gift from God to the people of God. During the French Revolution, uh, they wanted to get rid of everything that was remotely religious, even to the point of killing hundreds of church leaders and exiling over 30,000. They wanted to get rid of anything that resembled any religion. We kind of see that happening today, or people are trying to do that. But they also wanted to get rid of the seven-day week. Because without God, seven days is arbitrary. Why don't we just use the metric system? So they tried to make a 10-day week, but obviously that failed. They thought that they could make a more rational and scientific calendar. And this is what people who always go against God will always say. This is science or this is the science. And then they'll say something that is against God's law. They thought they could be more rational, even more scientific. And they created this calendar in 1791. But when you ask the pro- what the primary purpose was for this seven-day week to be destroyed and go on to this 10-day week, this is uh, the chief architect of that calendar. His name was Charles Gilbert Rum. And he would emphatically state, it's to abolish Sunday. They hated the church and the influence that it had. What had happened over the years is people couldn't survive on one day of rest in 10. And a few years later, Napoleon would revert back to the seven-day week. I give you this story just to make one simple point. God knows what he's doing. You can trust him. You may not understand it at the time, and it may be difficult, but God is with you, and he is for you. Nothing can separate you from God. He knows what he's doing. And when we set parameters then for celebrations or times of gathering, it's for our good. Being set free from sin and death means that we are now free to do the good things and what is righteous in Christ. And you see that as the kingdom is renewed, as we are being renewed now, this is what the picture of repentance is. This is what repentance looks like. 
that we are growing closer and closer to God. That's the beautiful picture that we see the bride of Christ going closer and closer to her groom until ultimately we are married to him and we are consummated. This is what we are looking forward to day by day with every step that we take. And so the simple point in the very end that I would like to make is trust in God. He has assured it to us by his blood and the atonement that he has bought for us on the cross. And he will lead us all the way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you when we could not do things on our own, when we were too weak, too frail, too sinful. You didn't leave us in our own misery, but you saved us out of your great mercy. And now we have this unmerited favor. We have blessings upon blessings because you are good. So now help us to celebrate rightly, knowing that this gospel that you give us is good news for all to hear and for us to live out in our daily lives. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on what God has shown us in his word as we have been given the good news of Jesus Christ that assures us of our eternity with him. Let's pray.